Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything, from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, we're coming from the bottom of the planet, Antarctica, on board the new Silver Endeavor, the latest cutting edge luxury expedition ship. And if you want to feel overwhelmed, blown away, insignificant, and in awe, then come to the Antarctic, the continent that changes forever the way you look at the world. I'll sit down with explorer Felicity Aston, who has a special relationship with the Antarctic. She's the first woman to ever ski across the Antarctic, solo, 59 days. Talk about self-imposed isolation on the forbidden continent. Then I'll be joined by Conrad Combrick, another global explorer, who is making his 79th trip to the Antarctic. You could say he's seen just about everything on this fragile continent. And as the chief of expeditions for Silver Sea, he'll tell you he's still surprised by the continent and what responsible travelers and explorers need to know. First up, Felicity Aston. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake-me-up-when-the-sun-sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. 
Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Felicity Aston, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay, I got to start with the obvious question uh, because this is not your first rodeo. Uh, you did other things in Greenland. You did other things with other ski teams, but this probably was your most challenging, I hate to use the word endeavor, since we're on the endeavor, but it was. Yeah, exactly, and I think that was the point, the the driving force behind doing that specific journey, because previous to that, most of my journeys had been team expeditions, um, and I was very clear about the motivation I derived from those people around me and so I was curious to know well what happens when you take that away what happens when it's just me um am I somebody different or is it just the same and on my own wasn't that thought terrifying yeah and that's that's what drives me to do things I think if something doesn't terrify you a little then maybe you're not thinking big enough you know it's if you already know you can do something before you set out to do it kind of what's the point so let me put this in somewhat of a perspective I would be terrified to ski across Madison Avenue so you've taken I mean first of all the environment alone would almost require the buddy system the the environment alone would almost require a team because there's no one to help you there's nobody out there to come by there's no there's no bus station there there's no there's there's no relief whatsoever and now you compound it by saying oh yeah and by the way i'm going to do it by myself <laughs> yeah i mean my mum wasn't very happy with that progression either you know she's got used to me going off to dangerous places but when i went to well, explain explain your definition of a dangerous place <laughs> well it's not my definition of danger it's others perception you know when you're operating in a particular environment you get more comfortable with the risk i think and that in itself can be a danger you can become too complacent and uh, you know it's always something i'm really wary of um but you know you can never eliminate the risk of an environment altogether but you can try and make it so that you're comfortable with that risk so that takes a long time to really work on each of those areas until you've got to a place where you're comfortable i mean you were on the team that crossed the greenland ice sheet how long did that take? <laughs> yeah. Well, it took us... We, we did a double crossing, so we went... Uh, oh, yeah. No, it wasn't enough to do a single crossing? <laughs> we went from east to west and then west to east to where we started, and that was 1,100 kilometers. And a lot of people look at that. It was my first independent expedition, so they look at that and go, oh, you were out to prove yourself. But the reality was we were putting it together on a shoestring. You know, we were in our 20s. We'd never done anything like it before. We didn't have any financial sponsorship, not anything very big. Um, and we couldn't afford the flight off the ice on the West Coast. So in our naivety, we thought, no problem. We'll just turn around and ski back and that will save us a whole load, a load of money. But, you know, when we did arrive back after 31 days, it took us to 
go to the west coast and back again um you know we were skeletal thin we had horrible injuries on our feet um we had a real time of it we realized why people don't do a double crossing of the Greenland ice sheet and we made so many mistakes but those mistakes rather than making us feel defeated for me personally it made me want to go back out and you know show that I'd learned my lesson and to put that lesson those lessons into action what what were those lessons Uh, Well, I mean, from the very specific things like um, making sure you have boots that have removable liners so that you can dry the liners out every night. We couldn't take the liners out of our boots, so they were always a bit soggy. So the moisture that built up during the day froze during the night. So then in the morning, you're putting your feet back into wet, frozen boots. And the frozen boot, as it soaks up the heat from your feet during the day, would then melt the boot so it was cold. And so we got horrible cold injuries on our feet because we were walking in wet or frozen boots all the time which uh, is not the way it should be done and then more generally things like our rations we got our rations so wrong we cut out um, a lot of the fat that you need for an expedition like that so we had uh, things what, like, what were you eating uh, we were eating freeze-dried meals uh, we were eating porridge uh, we were eating sort of nutrition bars so high carb or high protein bars wait wait stop right there porridge porridge yeah in the morning that's a classic expedition staple um so you just take oats with you uh with extra milk powder in it a lot of sugar in it and all you have to do is add water and you have porridge for breakfast Um, but you weren't going to grandma's house (laughs) well when i put together international teams a lot of them i've just looked at i remember one teammate from singapore looked at me and just went what are you feeding us like what is this stuff she was like why can't we have noodles for breakfast and i was like yeah she you've got a point so now sometimes more often than not i have noodles rather than porridge ramen (laughs) yeah exactly i can't stand porridge after 25 years of eating it on every expedition i honestly can't get it in me anymore (laughs) my body rejects it (laughs) we'll start with greenland then i'll move over to antarctic were you ever scared in greenland yeah, I mean, you know, there's different levels of scared the whole time. I think um, a lot of people are under the misapprehension that to be a polar explorer and an expedition leader, you're one of these sort of adrenaline sports junkies, you know, and it couldn't be further from the truth. You have to be really good with a spreadsheet, really love, you know, planning the detail and going into plan A through to Z just in case, always asking yourself, what if, what if, what if, always resisting the urge to take that shortcut because you don't know what that's going to cost you and so when you're responsible for people in a place like Greenland or Antarctica or something like that um, I think you're always a certain level of scared it's just about you know using that fear to help you make better decisions. Now we mentioned plan A to Z let's be honest plan A never worked. (laughs) Well not always I mean it's always a certain version of plan A it's never too far from well no that's a that's Uh a lot for plan A yeah but you know I think it's also about what your expectation is it's like sailing to Antarctica if you've if you've got an expectation in your head that you're going to arrive with you know beautiful midnight sun and an orca is going to leap over the bow of your ship you know if if you've gone with a set expectation of what's going to happen then that's never going to serve you well Um, you've just got to go with the kind of open-ended attitude that whatever happens it's going to be brilliant you know and uh, I think that's a a much healthier mental position to have when you go into any kind of expedition including this one. When you were done with the Greenland ice sheet both directions again did you look in the mirror and go 
I can't wait to do this again or like, okay, we're done? Definitely, I can't wait to do it again. I mean, I already had the next expedition in my mind as we were doing uh, skiing across Greenland. I think the thing about big, long ski expeditions is it's a lot of time inside your own head. You know, it's not easy to communicate with others while you're on the move. So you have a lot of time to think um, about... Uh, Overthink. Yeah, yeah, maybe overthink. But I think that's a real privilege in modern life, you know, to have time just to think about what have I done? What do I want to do? What do I want to look back on my life in 50 years? time and and be proud of um you know really sort of work out what is important to you and what you want to move forward doing and who is important to you yes i mean you know it's human beings are ultimately contrary things aren't we so when you're out on expedition you're dreaming about being home and how wonderful it is to be sat on surrounded by your loved ones and having things like supermarkets that stock every food known to matter, you know, all the things that you don't have in your tent. And yet when you are home and you've got all those wonderful things to hand, all you can think about is wanting to be back out in the mountains or back out of the poles. Um, so I've had to work quite hard at making sure those two kind of passions harmonise with each other rather than cause a conflict, you know, rather than being permanently torn between the two worlds to try and make them balance each other and, and be a harmony. And you said that the minute you finished, you already had your next expedition planned. Yes, yeah. I mean, Which was where? Uh, next one after the solo one, we, we went to the Pole of Cold, the coldest inhabited place in the world, uh, which a lot of people don't realise, actually northeast Siberia. Uh, a lot of people say Canada or maybe the North Pole, but in northeast uh, Siberia, there's a little town called Omyakon that regularly in the wintertime, they're down below minus 60 degrees Celsius, um, but they still go to school, drive their cars, go to work. So <laughs> as someone who'd spent a lot of time in Antarctica, I was fascinated. Like, well, how do you how do you go to school when it's minus 60? And all the kids walk to school. It's absolutely incredible. But uh, yeah, so I mean, at any point in time, like right now, I have maybe half a dozen expeditions in various stages of reality from the ones that are still just an idea in my head to the ones that are in the process of being planned to the ones that are absolute certainties are going to happen in the next few months so um you know it's it that's the constant process i should mention we're on board the silver endeavor where felicity was named the godmother so congratulations on that how appropriate we're in the antarctic and you skied across it what gave you the idea let's go back to the antarctic skiing expedition because this was not a team activity this was just you different kind of planning different kind of mindset and not a lot of plan b's c's and d's on that one no and i thought i had prepared really well particularly for the being alone bit. You know, the, the logistics and everything, they weren't too dissimilar from going with a team and expeditions I'd done previously, but the being alone was the bit that, that worried me, particularly because I'd seen in teams how when somebody, for example starts showing the early signs of hypothermia or starts getting into trouble they are the last person to realize that something is wrong it's the people around them that pick up on oh you're not speaking much today or you're wearing an extra jacket or you know something's not right with you so it really worried me if you're on your own how do you pick up on those things? Um, and so I, I sought the advice of lots of people who had made solo journeys in the past in, in the polar regions. I went to see a sports psychologist that specialised in aspects of aloneness. And so I thought I prepared really well. But in those first few seconds of the expedition, as the plane that had dropped me off sort of disappeared over the horizon, I realised that I had not prepared at all, that this was one of the biggest shocks of my life. And it was the shock of that sense of isolation, that realisation that from that moment on I was totally 100% responsible 
for my own well-being and what happened from then. And that was frightening. Was there a time when that plane took off that if somebody had been there, they could hear you screaming, what was I thinking? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if they'd returned, they would have found me sitting on my sledge, head in my hands, sobbing my heart out, thinking, you know, this is the biggest mistake of my life. But, you know, ultimately, you don't have a choice because I was very aware that to get me to that start point had taken a week of logistical manoeuvring, highly expensive logistical manoeuvring, to get me to where I needed to be. So if they had to come back for me you know it it would have been another huge operation of logistically economically but also those people risking their lives to to fly over antarctica to come get me well let's talk about the logistics here they just didn't drop you off with a sled they had to drop you off with provisions with extra clothing with water with supplies with medical supplies all the things that you might need correct yes yeah, so i had uh i had two resupplies on my journey i was picking up a bag of food at the south pole and then another 500 kilometers further along at a location that the plane that dropped me off then dropped the bag on its return journey um, but what was the guarantee the bag would be there when you got there <laughs> well exactly i had a scrap of paper with a particular set of coordinates on it and i was thinking oh my goodness the chances of me you know gps's aren't hugely accurate at the best of times i was thinking the chances of me finding this tiny bag but it's just a demonstration of how empty the antarctic landscape is that i saw a black dot in the snow from, I think I was three nautical miles away when I first spotted it. I mean, that's like five kilometers. Um, You know, it's incredible that you can see something so tiny from such a distance. But by the time you got to that black dot, how much gear and supplies were you actually physically hauling? Yeah, well, when I started, I couldn't fit everything in one sledge. It was too much volume. So I had two sledges attached one behind the other in series. And together they weighed about 85 kilograms when I started. So what's that? That's about 190 pounds, is no, it? No, it's more than that. A kilogram is 2.2 pounds. So you're talking about, basically, oh, 190 pounds would be about right. Yes, you're right. <laughs> now you know why I failed math and you skied across the Antarctic. Okay. But that's a lot to pull. Um, Yeah, and you know, at the beginning of my journey, I had to get up uh, a glacier called the Leverett Glacier that goes through the Transantarctic Mountains. So I went straight into a kind of steep uphill on a really glassy, icy surface. Um, But uh, you know, you use the food, um, you so the weight sort of gets less and less as as you go. Um, And but 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 there's not a trail there, is there? You're making this as you go along. Yeah. So. you know, things have changed a lot in the Antarctic uh, now. So actually on the glacier that I used, apparently um, there, there is a, a well-used trail there now. But at the time that I was doing it, no, it's... Uh, and I was in whiteout most of the time, so <laughs> I didn't know what was there. I mean, we use the term whiteout pretty flippantly. Um, but, you know, when you've experienced a proper whiteout, it's, it's just a big grey spongy nothingness you know you've got no sense of orientation or distance or form or colour or contrast just nothing so all you've got is GPS uh, yeah although you can't use the GPS all the time because it runs off of batteries and batteries get eaten up really quickly in that sort of cold and I couldn't take with me batteries are heavy you know I couldn't take with me enough batteries so that I could use my GPS the whole time so you're just using a basic compass yeah but and the, this it's a sort of compromise because you can't solely just use a compass because the magnetic variation it, it, so it, it, it's haywire yeah that you'd spend all your time sort of trying to all so, right, so, so let me get this straight you can't use the GPS all the time because of the batteries. You can't use the compass because it doesn't tell the truth. <laughs> Dead reckoning is not going to work in a whiteout. 
So how did you do it? No, so you have to use a sort of combination of, of everything that you've got available. So I would have in the morning, I would take a spot location on my on my GPS and then just sort of get a sense of direction. And then I would just dial that direction into my compass as a sort of pointing stick. Uh, but more often than not, I was using environmental factors too. So if there was a wind, wind is very directional in, in Antarctica. So for example, okay, the wind's hitting the back of my right shoulder. So if at any point I suddenly felt that the wind was hitting my left side I knew I had gone off track and would check with my compass and my GPS well your navigational skills based on what may be tapping you on the shoulder in the form of wind I'm amazed I'm even sitting here talking to you (laughs) yeah I mean you know your mind plays such tricks on you and that's one of the hard challenges of an expedition like this is that you're constantly sort of second guessing yourself so for example I would stop occasionally I'd stay on my skis I'd adjust I don't know a glove or my jacket or something I haven't moved my skis and then I'm ready to set off again and I glance down at my GPS and my jeep uh, or my compass and my compass is telling me that I've turned exactly 90 degrees and I'm thinking there is no way I've turned I haven't moved my skis since I stopped how can I have moved 90 degrees and then there's a battle between do I trust the compass or do I trust my mind? And in every case, the right answer is trust the compass. But it is so difficult to trust the compass when your body and your mind is telling you the exact opposite. And So please tell me you weren't going around in circles. <laughs> some days I would believe that I was. You know, some days I would stop and pitch my tent and think this is exactly the same spot of snow that I camped on last night I, I I could I could swear it and yet of course it wasn't you know and so I would check with my GPS now I'm definitely in a different place and I had a map of my route so it was a kind of laminated white sheet in effect there's there's nothing to be on a map right but the reason I had it was that every night I would put a little cross where I'd pitched my tent and that was the kind of proof to myself the reaffirmation that I wasn't going around in circles and that I was actually making progress because if I relied on the evidence of my eyes and my senses I would have believed that I was just going round and round on the spot. How long did it take you? 59 days. Say that again. (laughs) 59 days. With not another person no. Well, I did see people along the journey. So um, at the South Pole, the South Pole is now, um, you know, one of the biggest research stations on Antarctica. So there's 250 people that live and work there during the summer season. So as I approached the South Pole station, I'd been there before, so I knew there were people there. And although it was a whiteout, so I couldn't see anything, um, just knowing that there were people close by I got such a sense of mental security from that I knew that if something went wrong right there and then you know there were people out there that could help me and that really worried me because of course the South Pole wasn't the end of my journey the South Pole is more or less in the center of Antarctica so I had to pass through it and not many people at the time did that you know arrived at the South Pole and then had to carry on and I was worried about okay now that I know how awful it feels to be out there on my own I've now had the safety of being near other people, but now I've got to let go of that sense of safety and propel myself back out into that loneliness. And I know exactly how terrifying that's going to feel. So, But you did hard. it. Yeah, well, I'll let you into a secret. The only, I think one of the only reasons I managed to get myself out of the South Pole Station again was that a small group of scientists came out to very kindly sort of wish me on my way. And the truth is, it's really difficult to tell a waiting crowd how no, no matter how small that crowd is that you've changed your mind and you're not going 
going anywhere. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to see that disappointment in their faces. So I remember quite clearly skiing out of the South Pole, thinking, you know, with every fibre of my being, screaming that this was a mistake, and yet thinking, you can just, you know, ski out today and come back on the quiet tomorrow when nobody sees you. But <laughs> you know, that fear of public humiliation is a is a strong one that shouldn't be underestimated. <laughs> All right, so we talked about an occasional people sighting, but you kept going. What about animals? No, not not a sausage. Probably not even bacteria, as far as I'm aware. Um, you know, I mean, it's one of the uh, unique features of the Antarctic Plateau that there is just nothing. There's all the wildlife stays near the coast, near open water. So you're not going to see a penguin or a seabird. Um, even if you hit rock, you won't find mosses or lichen. Um, yeah, even bacteria has a hard time surviving. So, so nothing is growing there. Nothing, nothing and nobody. And there's never been a native population of Antarctica. So there's no sort of human footprint um, or, you know, the footprint that's there is, is a very light one. Um, so it's it's a really otherworldly landscape, otherworldly place to be. And it messes with your head. You start to doubt that existence is out there. You start to doubt that it can be possible that there are motorways and, you know, um, electricity and, you know, all these things seem so far-fetched because you're in this ancient, vast and empty world. And it you begin to believe that that's all there is. If you were having conversations with yourself and, and losing the argument. <laughs> yeah. And I, I didn't just talk to myself either. I ended up talking to the sun quite a lot too, which um, I've since learned a lot of people do. Uh, you know, it's like a coping strategy, uh, talk to the sun. But where I started to get worried was when the sun started talking back. That was a moment where I thought, oh no, is this a bad sign? But um, the sports psychologist that I'd been seeing before I left had said to me, you know, I asked him, you know, how, when should should I be worried that, you know, I'm, I'm reaching some kind of breaking point? And he said, as long as you know on some level that what you're experiencing is not real, then you don't have a clinical problem. It's small reassurance, but it was reassurance. So I ended up telling to myself, oh, you know that the sun's not really speaking to you, don't you? And then I had the sun in the back of my head saying, well, I'm offended. You think I'm not real. I might not bother turning up if you think I'm just a figment of your imagination. So <laughs> it shows how complex your self-deception and your coping strategies can get. But let me ask a question that most people don't realize until they get down here, and that's the concept of light. And that is, in a 24-hour period, there's not a lot of darkness. No, and I find that a wonderful thing. It's really useful for a start because, you know, time zones or the time of day ceases to have relevance. Um, so you can focus on things like how tired you are or, you know, it, but patterns become varied um, and, and more specific to, to what you're doing. How often did you sleep every night? How, how, much, how many hours? It was really important to me that I got a good eight hours sleep if I could, which is kind of unheard of on expeditions. Usually one, you know, characteristic of expeditions is you don't get much sleep, but it was because it was a longer expedition. It was really important to me that I got the rest. Um, so when I stopped, I stopped for a good period of time, uh, but then it meant that I would be on the move for longer too. So I would never be on the move for less than 12 hours um, and usually 16 or so hours before I would stop and put up the tent. But of course, you put up the tent in daylight. 
yeah, so that you, you know, don't need head torches or anything. And it's, it's quite a comforting thing that doesn't matter when you wake up, you can see immediately. It's a lot harder, you know, when I've done expeditions uh, when you've had darkness, it, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar that something really complicated is going to go wrong while it's dark. It never goes wrong in the daylight. And it just makes things so much more complicated and more scary in a way when you can't see. Um, we rely on our sight for much more than you know we realise, I think. Um, so I actually like the, the 24-hour d- daylight. I find it helpful. Of course, the juxtaposition is I'm talking to you on board the Silver Endeavour where you're seeing the Antarctic in somewhat more comfort than you experienced it on those skis. Yeah, I'm always saying to people, you know, there are lots of different ways to explore and to have worthwhile experiences, wonderful experiences that can really affect you and that can do a lot of good. You don't have to you know, be suffering to be doing something worthwhile. <laughs> you can do it in comfort. And that's your excuse for being on this ship. <laughs> well, you know, when, when I first started doing uh, polar travel, um, I benefited a lot from a, a lot of Norwegians that were around and, you know, I was soaking up their experience and their philosophy. And, you know, the, the British philosophy is very much about stoicism. Like, you have to suffer to prove that you're doing something really difficult. By the way, when I was first starting my, my, my career as a journalist, I would go to bookstores in London and look at all the books written by British travel writers. And every book title was My Walk Across India. My journey, everything was their, their you know, how stoic they were in the middle of, you know, Ethiopia. And that's really what you did. Yeah. I mean, the Norwegian approach is totally different. They think that, you know, you're winning if you're making yourself comfortable in an environment. You know, if you're feeling comfortable, then you're going to be able to put in a better performance. And I really ascribe to that because, um, you know, if you've got frostbite in your hands and your feet and you haven't looked, you know, if you're in a bad shape, then... uh, then you're not going to be able to put in your best performance. And mentally too, you know, small things can make a big difference mentally. Warming up your boots in the morning with a hot water bottle before you put them on. You know, some of my uh, British uh, contemporaries, you know, laughed out the side of their faces. Like, oh, yeah, it's a bit, uh, that's a bit of luxury. But actually, it means that you're putting on nice warm boots in the morning so your feet are feeling good and you can put in a good day, you know, rather than starting off the day with feet that have fallen off. <laughs> I get it. So what does it mean to be the godmother of this ship? I think it's such a wonderful tradition for a start. I mean, my my big passion is reinforcing that women have always been explorers. You know, too often it's suggested that they are kind of new arrivals in exploration. There have been women exploring since the beginning of time. Of course there have. And so I love the fact that, firstly, that ships are always female. And secondly, this tradition of having a godmother. I think it's just a little reminder that, you know, that the women are a really important part of the expedition story and expedition heritage. My thanks to Felicity. What an incredible story. And now to a longer perspective on the Antarctic from someone who knows it well. Conrad Combrink, who runs the expeditions for Silver Sea Cruises, is making his 79th trip to the continent. And the feeling he gets every time he returns is that it might as well be his first time. Let's talk about my mochi ice cream. Why? 
Because friends do not let friends miss out on something this good. My Mochi is premium ice cream wrapped in sweet soft dough. And the flavors are amazing. Like My Mochi double chocolate with rich chocolatey bits. It's a chocolate lover's dream. Or don't get me started on My Mochi strawberry ice cream. It's cool, creamy, and bursting with natural berry flavor. And the sweet, luscious flavor of My Mochi mango will send your taste buds straight to the tropics. My Mochi is gluten-free, perfectly portioned, and only around 90 calories per piece. Taste the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream today. Find My Mochi at Walmart or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Conrad Combrick, who is the head of all destination planning, itineraries, management, and expeditions. Did I get it all right just about? That is everything. I look after all the itinerary management for Silver Sea Expeditions, our destination research. You know, we are very destination focused. And of course, all our expeditions, expedition experiences, shore excursions. So it is a really diverse and very interesting role. And it's one thing to plan an expedition to Fort Lauderdale. It's one thing to plan an expedition to Miami or to Los Angeles. Down here, where most of the water still remain, for all intents and purposes, uncharted, it's a brave new world. It really is, you know, and I always remind myself and my team that nothing has changed. You know, it is still the same dangerous, wonderful world that Amundsen and Shackleton and Scott experienced when they came here in the early 1900s. The only thing that has changed is that we now have these incredible vessels like Silver Endeavor that allows us to come and explore in luxury. Well, you've got the technology that allows you to do that as well. You know, this ship is incredible technology from the range, the ice class, dynamic positioning system, the, the range of it technology that we have to allow us to really push deeper and further and really deliver those authentic experiences is a game changer. You mentioned dynamic positioning. Let me explain that. We're not dropping anchor. You do not drop an anchor. You have your bow thrusters, your stern thrusters, they're geo-positioned on a gyro, and you can actually hold position endlessly. You know, we saw it the other day when we arrived in the Antarctic Peninsula. There were pretty strong winds. The captain brought the ship very close to the island. Normally, you would want to anchor. There was no anchorage. The water was very deep. So he He just put the ship in position, he pressed the dynamic positioning button, and the computers took over and did the rest. Kept the ship completely stable, it created a lee for us, which meant that we could put our zodiacs in the water, and safely we could embark and disembark our guests on the zodiacs, and the ship just stayed there, you know, for, it was a three or four hour period, and the ship didn't move. It is an incredible piece of technology, and like you say, we have not used anchor once over the past few days that we've been in Antarctica, and that really is a groundbreaking technology and a great a game changer for us. I remember when I first came down here about four years ago, of course, the very first day you're going, oh, look, it's the Antarctic. And then the next day it's like, oh my God, it's the Antarctic. Because you take so much for granted. You get a little bit spoiled on a ship like this. And then the minute you step into the Zodiac, you realize I've, di- I've now entered a different world. You know, it is always fun to see the transformation in people. You know, they have this theoretical idea of what Antarctica is going to be like. But no matter how much time you spend researching 
researching it, no matter how much time you spend preparing for it, you are completely unprepared for the majestic beauty, for the grandiose Antarctica that you experience. And I've been here, this was my 79th trip. I I was about to say that. I'm still blown away by that. You've been here 79 times. And I've experienced it 79 different uh, ways. It is just, it is one of the most incredible destinations. You know, I often get asked by my colleagues, um, by our travel partners, by our guests, um, what is Antarctica like? You know, how do I explain Antarctica? How do you do that? You can't. Until you've been here, you truly do not understand it. Um, it is just one of those places that, I mean, Peter, you've been with me on expeditions. And you know that places like Antarctica, even couples on the same trip have different emotional experiences because it is an emotional journey. You know, you are at the end of the world. You are in an area where it is almost still untouched by by human elements and it is an area where every single day like we've experienced the last two days it changes you've got sunshine you've got wind you've got snow you've got blizzards all in a couple of hours it's an area where we do not have control and in our lives where we love to take control of everything i find it incredibly satisfying that there is a place on earth where we have to completely relinquish control to Mother Nature. I mean, you talk about the same environment that Shackleton saw in Amundsen and, and Scott, with one difference. They didn't have much of a chance. I mean, this is an extreme destination that does extreme things in very short amounts of time. It really is. And, you know, of course, over the past few decades, as expedition cruising um, and the popularity of expedition cruising grew, um, we have also started preparing for that growth. So, you know, the amount of time that we spend preparing for these expeditions um, is really intense. You know, our expedition team gets really intense training. We make sure that we have got a very qualified expedition team because they are the people that take you out on the zodiacs, on the hikes. So we make sure that we cover everything from crevasse rescue to medic first aid training. You know, it is it is a very intense operation months before the vessel even gets down to Antarctica. And of course, when the when the weather changes that rapidly, you have to get, get good weather forecasting. Otherwise, you could get trapped. The golden rule in Antarctica is you do not look at what's happening now. You always look at what's happening an hour and a day from now because the weather can change so quickly. You have to be able to react. So sometimes we would cancel a landing or call off an activity and people would say, but I've got blue skies and no wind. Like, yes, but an hour from now, it's going to be very different. So you always have to look to the future. And of course, the seasons here are completely reversed. Uh, Our summer is not where you want to be down here. Between, let's say, March and November, very little light, extreme cold. No, I mean, it's nobody comes. Unless you're a scientist and you're over winter here in a, in a base. But yeah, there are no tourism down here during our U.S. summers. Um, and then, of course, we are here now in, uh, in the winter, the U.S. winter. And uh, as we're experiencing now, it's warmer here than in New York. I, I keep going back to the idea that whatever plan A you have is plan G by the end of the day. By the time that we present it to our guests, it's probably plan ZZ. <laughs> because it is a constant change. You know, the relationship on an expedition ship between the captain, the expedition leader, is absolutely vital because they continuously monitor 
ice, weather, wildlife. But what I... And the captain is still God. The captain is absolutely the final um, person in charge, and he makes the decision. And, you know, there are a couple of things. You know, at Silver Sea, we fully, fully believe that there's no commercial pressure on anybody on our ships to get guests off the ship. You know, so it's always safety first, 100%. But, Peter, you know, one of the beauties about Antarctica... Outside Antarctica, you've got all these companies, Silver Sea and many of our competitors, we compete against each other. But when the ships are down here in Antarctica, it really is a community of expedition ships that work together, not only to make sure that everything is safe, but also that we preserve Antarctica. So um, we work together to allow each other to change plans. And, you know, if somebody had a bad weather day a couple of days ago and they really need to get people ashore, we will trade, you know, and we'll say, ah, come in here, we'll go somewhere else. So it's a wonderful example of how companies can work together. Of course, it's back to managing growth as well, because, you know, during the pandemic, everybody is seeking out social distancing. You can't get better social distancing than where we are right now. The population doesn't really exist other than what's on the ship and a few other ships. So the real challenge that not just you have, but all the cruise lines have, is how do you manage that growth and still preserve the environment? That's a very, very good question. You know, we belong to IATO. IATO is a membership organization. Which means? The International Association for Antarctic Tour Operators. This is a membership organization founded by five expedition companies many, many years ago. Um for the pure purpose of preservation of Antarctica and for the creation of sustainable travel to Antarctica and creating ambassadors for the continent. What is sustainable? I know what sustainable travel means in Miami. What does it mean in the Antarctic? In Antarctica, it basically... It goes beyond no single-use straws. No, absolutely. You know, it goes... the. At, at its core, it is creating ambassadors for Antarctica and limiting human impact. So making sure that the travel that we have here has no more than a transient impact. So it is not a permanent impact that we have here. So everything that we do, every, every operation has been planned to make sure that the impact to the nature is at its minimum. And as we're sailing through some of these islands, which have names like Deception Island, which in itself is, is pretty awesome, uh, you may see one or two or three red buildings, but those are the research stations. There's no more building going on. No, absolutely not. You know, there are some research stations, and some of these are refuge huts that's been put up because, of course, uh, the scientists do travel away from their bases, so these refuge huts are there for them to use. But, you know, another way, Peter, when, when we talk about how we prepare for the growth, at Silver Sea, we've made the decision to actually um, send a scouting mission down to Antarctica. So in the next few months, we will actually charter a ship, not one of our own ships, we will charter a research ship, and we are sending a team of captains and expedition staff down to Antarctica on a, on a multi-week mission to, to explore Antarctica, to create site guidelines for the industry so that we can operate um, in a little bit more of a spread out way. And not just site guidelines for you, but for everybody else. Yes, absolutely. You know, again, it goes back to that collaboration because the more we develop positive the environment, the, the tourism in this area, we will all benefit. And ultimately, it's not about only us benefiting as companies. It is the environment, Antarctica, benefiting. And that is truly 
what Antarctic tourism is about, the sustainability, making sure that our impact is not permanent. We're not talking T-shirts. We're not talking straw hats. We're not talking souvenirs. There are no souvenirs. Except if you go to one or two of the scientific stations. They sell T-shirts and souvenirs. You know what? I was at a Chilean research station four years ago, and they gave me a challenge coin. I was in. That's it. But that's it. That, that really is it, you know. So the real question now is, when passengers leave this ship and other ships, what's the message you want them to carry back? We, as I mentioned before, we want them to be ambassadors for Antarctica. We want them to go back and spread the word that we have to, have to, have to preserve the beauty, the pristine environment that is Antarctica. And we should take this message not only in Antarctica, we should take it beyond Antarctica. We have to start looking after our planet. My thanks to Conrad and to Felicity Aston, And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news from anywhere in the world, just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy winning multi platinum RB phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So, whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So, he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.